Welcome to Heterodox Out Loud. I'm John Tomasi, the president of Heterodox Academy. On every episode, we'll be taking you on an exciting intellectual adventure, our journey across the complex and challenging terrain of opening Korean higher education. You've been meeting leading college professors, some heterodox college presidents, and some entrepreneurial students too. Our aim is to give you an insider's view of the complex terrain of open inquiry in higher education, the perils and the possibilities too. So let's get ready for another adventure into heterodoxy. Does academic freedom need to have a defense team on campus? Today, we'll be talking with a cognitive scientist, Stephen Pinker from Harvard. Steve is a founding member of Heterodox Academy and an active member still. He's also a founding member of the Council for Academic Freedom at Harvard. Let's see what Pinker has to say. Stephen Pinker, welcome to Heterodox Out Loud. Thank you. It's nice to have you here in New York. We just finished a CAP seminar with you talking about some of your, your new work. This is it's great to have you here in the center with us. Thank you. Um, I want to talk with you about a number of things, but I want to start by talking about um, this, the Council for Academic Freedom at Harvard. And last spring in April, uh, you and a colleague, Bertha Madras, uh, published an op-ed in the uh, Boston Globe. They got a lot of attention. A lot of us around the country read that op-ed with real interest and enthusiasm. Can you just tell us a bit about what led to the formation of the council and what's, what, what's going on? There are nationwide problems with our universities. There was a widespread impression, uh, to a large part correct, that universities, rather than the crucibles of ideas and, and debate, are uh, like medieval uh, seminaries supporting uh, dogmas, and there are certain statements for which you can be censored, ostracized, uh, fired, punished. And that universities are therefore forfeiting their mandate of being places where uh, society uh, uh, gives people the mandate to, to search for truth. You can't get at the truth if there's some things you can't say. We're a fallible species, we're riddled with, with um, biases, that fallacies. The only way that our species has managed to discover anything about anything is that some mortal people venture an idea, others say what's wrong with it, and then the best ideas survive. Uh, if you disable that process by making some ideas punishable, then you're guaranteed to lock yourself into error, and you uh, forfeit the reputation of university. And I'd have uh, encountered people, intelligent people, who uh, will respond to my saying, for example, that we have to have climate change because a overwhelming consensus in science is that human activity is arming the planet. And they reply, well, why should we trust the consensus? Because everyone knows that academia, if you challenge the consensus, you get canceled. That's right. Uh, so even when the, the academics are almost certainly correct, as they are in greenhouse gases warming the planet, we have lost all our credibility because of this culture of cancellation. That's an impact. So it's fair to say that we've been, we've been following this at HXA about the, the decreasing trust in universities. There was a Gallup poll you always saw last summer that suggested that over the past 20 years, this book, Trust in higher education has cratered, cut 47% to something like, like 28%. Oh, the majority of people think that universities are harming uh, the health of the country. Uh, yes, which is remarkable. Which is remarkable, and which is, uh, we think, I mean, it's driven by a number of phenomena, such as uh, exponentially increased tuition. Uh, but uh, a large contributor to the, the creation of trust in universities is the, often the viral videos and the accurate stories of students and professors being punished for 
often for saying things that are true, uh, such as there are two sexes. Uh, that, that's a true statement. And that drove one of my colleagues, Carol Hooven, out of science. Despite the university's self-proclaimed goal of enhancing participation of women in science with an aim toward uh, equity, but if you're a woman associated two sexes, uh, up you go. Now, that may have been was one of the last straws. It wasn't the only one. There are other cases of uh, mobs rising up to denounce a professor because they found that in several years ago he co-signed an amicus brief to the Supreme Court against gay marriage. Uh, another professor had his course canceled because it evaluated the efficacy of counterinsurgency techniques in combating gang violence. Uh, there's a long list of things that could that that got people. A law professor at Harvard who was defending Weinstein, I believe. Isn't that right? That is right. Who was believed uh, to his post as a residential dean because he was defending uh, Harvey Weinstein, even though our constitutional system says that every defendant has a right to defense. The alternative being someone gets jailed because we some someone else says he's guilty. We obviously don't want that. So as we failed, it's not just the harm done to uh, Ron Sullivan. Uh, calling it a law school, but it is an abrogative of our responsibility to educate students and how things work, such as the fact that if you have a criminal justice system where all it takes is to accuse someone to convict them and they don't get to defend themselves, then you open the door to untold horrors. History tells us that. Other comparisons to Hindu courts in our repressive autocracies tell us that. And so for Harvard faculty member to defend Harvey Weinstein, as wolves in the sea might be, is not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It shows that we've got a functioning criminal justice system. The students protest the mere fact that a defendant has a criminal defense attorney. There's something deep that they don't understand about principles of justice. And can, I, can, I, can, I, can I say something about that? It seems to me that those kinds of moments when students would say something like, we don't want the law professor at our school defending someone we think is evil and wrong and should be punished, that, that We used to call that a teaching moment. It's an opportunity to explain to students what the judicial system worked for that, a certain system means. But there seems to be something new on the block in the last 10 or 15 years where students who hear those teaching moments of discussions, they stick with their, they stick with their view. They don't back down. Well, the thing is, it's up to teachers to identify and uh, uh, take advantage of teaching moments. Uh, they're not called learnable moments. They're called teachable moments because they open up uh, well, for teachers to teach, but we haven't been doing that. Well, any point, all too often, the administrators have done the opposite of new skills and opportunities. They have basically kissed the student's ass and say, uh, asses and said, this, this makes you upset. Okay, okay, well, we don't want you to be upset. Well, what I want to push you on a little bit is this, um, and it's something I've, I've noticed, and I'll give, I'll give an example. Um, uh, Ray, East, New York City Police Commissioner Ray Kelly gave a lecture at Brown University and which a bunch of students and some people from off campus came to the lecture and they shouted him down. It was one of the first public, big public shout downs. And when the students who organized that shout down were confronted with the fact they violated the student, student conduct and said they've done the wrong thing because they prevented other students from listening and so on, and they're confronted with those facts, the new thing on the block, in my view, was that the students stood their ground. They said that there are reasons for, if you, you wouldn't cancel this lecture, we're going to cancel this lecture. This kind of speaker puts students of color in, in dangerous way. We have an obligation above your lectures, above your ideas, that justifies us in doing this. 
And that seems to be something new on the block now. There seems to be, there are sets of ideas that have grown within universities that I think justify some of these actions of students. Does that seem right to you? Or is this a, is something this by justify, you mean really does justify, or that is, uh, is, is, is uh, acceded to as uh, something that is not opposed, but ought to be? I think this is, there's a challenging of the fundamental principles underway. And in the case of those groups, the students of Brown who stood proud to say we shouted them down and we did, we'd do it again. There were, there, some of them referred to Marcuse, and there's an essay by Marcuse in 1967 of repression toleration, in which he talks about the, the need to defend the oppressed, even against the advocates of free speech and toleration. That toleration and neutrality are masks for power. And there's this critical theory idea that a lot of these liberal ideas of free speech and toleration and neutrality are simply masked for power. And, and the job of this new generation is to unmask those things and to tear them that. Oh, yes. Yeah, so I agree that that is widely believed. And I think it's a pernicious belief. It's not a belief on which our universities are outed. It's not written into the procedures of our universities, the principles story, which is or, a, or an archocracy. Uh, Marcuse was a, um, a Marxist, or he took Marxism in his own new directions. And, but that's not the society we live in, and I'm glad it isn't. And there are good arguments why it shouldn't be. Namely, that there, how do we know that what Marcuse is saying is right? Why should we shut him up? Why should we shut out the students? who are arguing for Mar- Marcuse, uh, the, the, the fact that they think they're right is not a good enough reason, because I think I'm right. Um, so do I get to shut them down? And the answer has to be no. No one gets to shut, shut, shut anyone down, to shut anyone up. Uh, ideas, uh, including that one, can be voiced, but they don't carry the day when it comes to silencing their opponents. And in the case of the, the uh, police commissioner, it's another case in which Voicing heterodox opinions is not just a case of uh, a, a prerogative of a professor or a, uh, an arcane point of principle. It's not like the famous case in which the ACLU defended the right of Nazis to march in the Jewish community of Spokane in the late 1970s, that we may find the content postures of a Republican, but we defend their right to say it. There are, in the university today, many of the cases, the Opinions that are being repressed are probably true. Uh, in the case of, uh, of say, what um, the, the New York East should do, New York Police, New York reduced its homicide rate by 75% in eight years. That's an awful, and that was an awful lot of black lives saved who'd be dead if it wasn't for them. So, this is a case where, far from reinforcing oppression or racial oppression, this saved more black lives than all the protests put together, what, what he did to induce uh, gang violence. And so this is a paradigm case where it ought to be, uh, or at least he ought not to be repressed if what we want hard care about is the well-being of minority communities. And you don't know whether it will be beneficial to them unless you hear the case being made. And you can argue against that. I'm, I'm wondering whether there's something new um, in universities that we can identify. You've taught at Harvard for a long time. How, how long have you been at Harvard? I've been at Harvard for... 20 years. Before that, I was at MIT for 21 years. And before that, I was Harvard and Stanford. So I've been an assistant for a whole long time. And so, and, and yet the academic, the, the Council on Academic Freedom was founded just this, this year in, in April 2023. Why then? Why not before? Is this, is this, is this, can, you, can you explain? I, mean, I, I, I all these things we know about the rise of this. Do you know that's what's happened? Oh, it's about way worse. I mean, well, I, you know, I, the, it, just as an objective fact, there are far more firings, censorings, 
um, uh, sanctions for content of speech in the last uh, six years that they were occurring beforehand. Foundation for Individual Rights of Expression has documented that. And it's just obvious that it includes the university. So, uh, so the answer to the question, why now, is it's gotten worse. Uh, and it did a timely development that was fortunate for us for propaganda reasons. It wasn't the impetus of Kelso. The fire published as Mankins of Free Speech five out of two hundred and forty eight universities. Yes. I recruited last place <laughs> yeah. with a score of zero. And that movie got a score of zero because they decided not to go into negative numbers. But now I, I didn't know that negative numbers part. Yeah. So next next year, who knows? We we have we have something to aspire to. Uh, that was helpful in answering the question that you just asked, like why we need this at Harvard. And it believe me, it is a ranking that we hold the attention of our new president and our new dean in saying why uh, why we are needed. What we hope to do is, first of all, is make people aware of the uh, the value of free speech of the university and just why we have it, what it is, uh, why it's necessary, to uh, enforce policies that are already on the books that uh, prevent the harassment or punishment of people for speech, to uh, come to the aid and support and suffer of people who have been targeted and then ostracized, which can be emotionally devastating, to uh, when, uh, as so often happens, there are activists who are kind of yammering to the ear of a dean, pressuring them to do something, uh, we're going to yammer into the other ear. Uh, so at least they're going to have to think about what's the, uh, the right decision, rather than just making the trouble go away by, uh, by, by, by trying to placate the Mauritius objectors. Uh, uh, and we hope to encourage student groups that have a parallel aim and uh, groups at other universities. Um, Harvard has the, we could ask the question, who cares what happens at Harvard? We're just a university. And, and there is, I, I know, firsthand experience, a tendency to think far too much of ourselves. But for better or worse, the world cares about that. Absolutely. And so we feel a, a responsibility to capitalize on that possibly undeserved attention, but at least to make something out of it. Well, I think mean, it's a wonderful thing. One of, the, one of the lines from the op-ed that really struck me, uh, you and Madras said, quote, academic freedom needs a defense team. Yes. And but, that, that was a really striking line. Also, this, this does actually relate to um, my own special um, specialty of cognitive psychology, where one of the reasons we need free speech is that people are fallible. That's how we're saddled with these brains that are riddled with, with fallacies and biases. Foremost among them, the um, motivated reasoning, and we steer our reasoning to a conclusion that we wanted to be true in the first place, and uh, the my-side bias, or we can call intellectual tribalism. That is, we favor whatever position makes our coalition look good. Now, these are, these are psychological phenomena that mean we should be incapable of discovering truth. As it happens, our species has discovered some truths. You know, we figured out you know, DNA, or solar system, galaxy, and brain science, and great uh, tectonics. How do we manage to do it, given that each one of us is so saddled with biases? And the answer is we form communities in which one person can criticize the idea of, of another. And do you think the students and faculty members who are skeptical of free speech or are behind some of these um, campaigns to fire people, do they deny the things you just said? What's, what do you think? When I, when I said before, why, why is it happening now? And I said, why, why form this council now? You answered, because those problems have been rising now. 
But I guess I think what I mean by that question is why are the problems rising now? Is there something is there something happening that you do you diagnose why this the need the need has arisen then? Yeah. So in terms of you know, root causes, yeah, uh, I doubt that. There, uh, there are a number of candidates. Uh, the country, of course, has gotten more politically polarized. Some people blame social media, book chambers, filter bubbles. Um, but another possible cause is uh, residential seg- and social segregation by education. Increasingly, people with higher degrees of education hang out with uh, one another in urban uh, centers and university towns. People with less of an education live in the outer suburbs or rural areas. And so, and the institutions that used to cross social classes, which more and more now leads educational classes, like party, like churches, like uh, service organizations have weakened. So people just put in social circles where everyone thinks and feels like. I'm thinking of Charles Murray's coming to Perp, which yeah. is a controversial thinker, all the see the reason what we just touched on, but that's one of his main theses, right? That we're divided as society based on that on that fact that you're oh, out. Absolutely. So that's what there's contributing factor. Yes, contributing factor. There's also some uh, legal mandates that have had the perhaps unintended consequence of uh, restricting speech, such as the criterion of a hostile climate for uh, title willing, that uh, it can be actionable. You can sue a company or a university if uh, not just if they're over acts of discrimination, but just if the climate is uh, uh, unwelcoming to women or minority groups, sexual or racial minorities. And that opens the door to all kinds of policing of speech, which contribute to climate. Um, there's the uh, burgeoning bureaucracy supporting the uh, climate, diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging, and uh, the mushrooming. Uh, bureaucracy in universities of bureaucrats empowered often to, to clamp down on speech or to apply filters such as diversity statements and job applicants to wean out people who don't conform to a particular ideology and a particular set of factual beliefs. There, there were intellectual kernels back from when I was a student in the 70s, such as uh, Herbert Marcuse and the idea that, uh, that, that uh, speech and knowledge are uh, actually just uh, pretexts of the powerful to suppress uh, other people. Wedded to postmodern epistemology, there's no such thing as objective truth. There's no such thing as objective truth. You know, all the reasons that I gave for the courage of freedom of speech, namely that's the only way we can attain the truth, go out the window. There's no truth to be attained with just warring dogmas, and let's just make sure that our dogma has more muscle than the other person's dogma. And free speech has nothing to do with it. And so the ascendancy of those ideas, particularly the academic humanities, means that they are kind of congenial to repression of speech. There may be a, maybe there is an external ex- exogenous pause that you can identify that perhaps once this idea took hold, started with Cephalides, and because academics still hire their own, out of quite point of the realm of academia is prestige. What is prestige? It's the Professor X saying Professor Y is, is, is okay, Professor Y saying Professor X is okay, and there can be a self-reinforcing system of a uh, bubble, really, of unchallenged beliefs. Or even a, even a targeting of certain ideals or departments that need to try to turn in a certain direction to make these ideas more thumb-up. Maybe part of the theory about thumb um, for example. Yeah, so they can be self, um, self-reinforcing as they never refuse to bow, uh, refuse to admit, only into submission 
and Elena disagrees. So the idea once having King de Tobol might uh, take over because of the lack of external uh, inputs to being uh, intellectual content of scholarly inquiry. When you, lots, when, you, when you and your colleagues launched the council uh, at Harvard, you mentioned a report from 1990 of the, the Harvard Free Speech Guidelines as a touchstone for career ideas. And you quoted from the very beginning of that report. I have a copy of that right there with me. You quoted from the very beginning of that report where the report writers say, quote, free speech is, is uniquely important to the university because we are a community committed to reason and rational discourse. Free exchange of ideas is vital for our primary function of discovering and dis- disseminating ideas through t- research, teaching, and learning. Curtailment of free speech undercuts the intellectual freedom that defines our purpose, defines the purpose of the university. Yeah, and it's not just because, you know, like being free, it's untended people saying whatever you want, but there is a rationale, which we've, we've spoken about this conversation, namely, that's how species is only means of uh, attaining. In this, in this, in the same report, um, at the very end of the report, the section seven, they talk about they recommend the creation on something they call an advisory committee on free speech, and they suggest that there, sh- there should be formed at Harvard some kind of a student. I'm reading it now from the report. Quote: A student faculty advisory committee on free speech should be established by the faculty council, and the purpose of that committee would be they, they list two purposes to discuss ambiguities which may arise in applying the guidelines of free speech through time, and also to introduce these values to new generations of the university community, which are, which are ideas that I think that I could put them that in an op-ed describing the, the rationale for the creation of the council are similar to these ideas. But the, was, there, was there ever a, a, an advisory committee for free speech formed in 1990 or before the council? Not, not that they know of. I've never heard of it. Yes, no, and, and we're, we, we weren't... Uh, uh, it panels to serve that function, but that's in, in a way that is what we're stepping into. And I, very few people are aware of this policy, which was voting on that is, is binding. And it is something that we can point to. We might need to suggest updating it. But it means that even though, as a private university, Harvard is not uh, subject to the First Amendment, but if there is a policy, then uh, the policy has to be followed. Or, or change. And so um, when, the, when the council began on last April, there were 50 members. Uh, HSA has always been proud to say that Harvard was, for, for many years, the place where they had the most members, 53 members of the Harvard faculty are HSA members. But not every member of the, of the council is, a, is an HSA member. You are, for example, your co-author, um, Bertha Madras, is, is not. Current of the caller after this after this happened. Yeah, we have a good side. Not official side. But uh, so you started with fifty. You've grown. Yes, I, I spent remarkable. And we're one hundred and sixty, perhaps. And is that fair? Is that faculty? Yes. So that's a remarkable. That's a remarkable achievement. So one hundred and sixty Harvard faculty are joining into this council. Yeah, it's still a you know it's still a minority, and that there is there are kind of age and sex and uh, discipline gradients. Which we would like to uh, level. Can you describe what those are? Uh, more older faculty than younger, more in the uh, sciences and medical school, also the, the humanities. Interest them. Uh, interest. Can you say anything about that? Well, so by, by far, the um, humanities are the, the source of certainly of the postmodernist um, mindset that. Uh, 
eliminates all four from speech and, and attaining truth, and there's no such thing as truth. Um, and that is more likely to see any kind of discussion of criteria of, of, of argumentation, of reasoning, as just pretext to power. So naturally less sympathetic. But also there's another association that we would um, we take pains to avoid that is in people's minds, and that is between free speech and the, uh, the political right. That's right. Uh, I think very few people on the council would identify as conservative. Um, there are a couple of Nazis. There aren't any professors who identify as conservative, or at least the ones are all in their 90s, uh, which itself is a problem. As says, I don't have to tell you. Yeah, we all on a lot of all people. Uh, but the um, but of course in academia, uh, as I put it, the uh, academia is at the, the left pole, just as when you're at the North Pole, all directions are south. Uh, where you're an academic, all directions are left. Or right, I'm sorry. In the left pole, all directions are right. And people who are real classical 60s liberals are now thought of as, as conservative by the standards of modern, progressive, intersectional, critical theory, social justice, political and correct ideology. That's right. Now, there's also the fact that the threats to academic freedom from within the academy largely come from the left whereas the threats from outside the academy largely come from the right. Uh, so largely in southern states of Florida and Texas. Uh, but when it comes to academic censoring academics, it's, uh, these, these are left-wing academics. And it's censored before it's a bit less left. And so your, your experience um, at Harvard and MIT and before at Stanford and other places these trends of um, ideological conformity on the on the on the political dimension, political access, they've been getting worse and worse. At least the imbalance is growing, growing worse and worse. Is that part of the explanation for why this eruption of anti-free speech behavior is happening on campuses? Yeah, I think so. Um, that the also there's another point that that I make in our office that free speech is is cognitively very unnatural. It doesn't assert to to people that it meets. Constant defense, otherwise we backslide into uh, orthodoxy. Because what is natural, this is well-established in cognitive psychology, is the people on my side are self-evidently right. The people who are on the other side are spreading dangerous falsehoods. Therefore, for the good of society, we have to shut up the people who are obviously incorrect and immoral. Now, of course, the people on the other side say the same thing with side switch. Uh, and if you a little bit of wisdom, if you can, if, if, if you can dislodge yourself from your own advantage points and put down on yourself as a as a human being, you realize, hey, I'm not an angel, and I do believe these things, but you know, maybe I'm wrong. Uh, how will I know I'm wrong unless I hear other opinions? But that's that does require uh, a uh, a campaign of persuasion, which I think we've been remiss at doing. Uh, the old arguments for free speech are ones that have been built and no one bothers making it anymore. Now, I mean, now we're trying to change that, and it is changing. Yeah, I think there's a, there's a, there's a sense that um, scholarship is, in some sense, some sense uh, an unnatural practice. That, that good scholarship, we're actually thinking about ideas, checking our premises, challenging ourselves, is not natural to human beings in all kinds of life. You wrap much better go with the group, throw it, throw it. And especially when it comes to scholarship that meets the idea of disinterest truth that may not be your current pet beliefs. Richard Feynman had a famous uh, saying that uh, uh, above all in science, 
you must not fool yourself because you were the easiest person to fool. Uh, Knowing that, that bit of meta-awareness of oneself as a fallible thinker, which doesn't come naturally, but what comes naturally is, you know, I'm obviously right. And it looks right to me here inside my skin. Uh, And it's the cognitive leak to get out of my skin uh, that makes me create space for people who disagree with me. One of the things that when, when Alpha came out, there was a bunch of responses. Obviously, people took a, were extremely interested in what's happening at Harvard and what, what motivated the, the group of you to do this. One of the really striking pieces that I read in the vacant app was an op-ed published by the Crimson editors that were, it was kind of lukewarm, I might say, that might be generous, a little bit critical, I think, of the, of the announcement, surprisingly enough. And I, you may not remember, it's probably a lot's gone by since you she published that piece last spring, but, but I wrote down a couple of things that that, that, that the editor said. They, one, they they called out a line that you just mentioned a moment ago from the op-ed, where you, the, you, you invert that says something like, when activists shout in the ears of the administrator, we will speak critically, calmly, but uh, consistently and forcefully, forcefully in, the, in the other ear. And the editors of this school paper, they called that out. They said, um, activism and academic freedom should be seen as allies, not enemies. Which would also come an interesting point, Matt. That, what, what, what do you make of that, of that idea that, that um, activism and academic freedom should be thought of as allies rather than adversaries? Well, in practice, they um, could be allies. In practice, they often have been adversaries because the activists who are trying to shut down the people who disagree with them. So obviously not all activism. And many activists have also been free speech advocates. Uh, Martin Luther King and many others. Uh, I mean, there's a strain of stooped activism that believes that part of the activism is to shut down the people who disagree with it or to, to bully and coerce deans and presidents into not going under and uh, acceding to their demands, which all too many presidents and deans have done uh, because we think it hasn't been an adversarial process of someone um, uh, speaking to their other ear, right? Saying, I, I, the, this is another contributor to the phenomenon. As universities, the phenomenon of, uh, of, of weakening of free speech protections is that it's often been noted that the university has become more corporatized. The um, person in charge, the president, often, and it's not been a vanguard of university values, but rather of university image and bottom line. How we set the air builders, how we stay out of headlines. In fact, it's been remarked that it's the chief counsel of the university, not the president. Uh, and I've been shocked as to how uh, we will and the touch we flabby the responses of university presidents, presidents often has been to these pressure campaigns, uh, rather than saying, look, just because this, uh, just because uh, this is your crusade, it doesn't mean you get to get your ways to have to persuade others. Uh, no, you can't scream obscenities into a professor's face uh, if there's something being said that makes you uncomfortable. No, we don't have the right not to ever hear an opinion that makes you feel bad. Uh, basic principles of grown-up discourse, but the presidents and deans haven't made them, partly because they just want to make trouble go away as quickly as possible, partly because they've been often promoted from the ranks of their um, have the administrative competence. They've they've previous stability, they presumably should a department in some particular field, but there's no selection for uh, ability to think 
clearly of the mission of the university in the 21st century. Why we have a university have ought to, 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 to run this more custodial management, increasing the endowment, keeping him, keeping out the negative headlines. And so that corporatization of the university, it seems like yet another factor. We're, we're collecting factors, you and I, that might be explaining why the things are happening. One yeah. might be an increasing, increasing demographic drift towards an ideological conformity across the faculty. Another is a set of ideas rising from a new generation of students, taking some of these Marcusean points and postmodern points very seriously. And now there's a third piece, perhaps, something like a corporatization of the university and the role of the university president. On that last point, is that a new phenomenon? I mean, haven't presidents always been sort of weak-willed, or was it, is it, am, I, am I not thinking of that correctly? Yeah, I shouldn't. Uh, I, of all people, should not um, be too nostalgic about the past. Uh, they used to be highly outspoken for the university presidents, of which uh, John Silburn may have uh, long time president at the U, just have a word. Deliberately hope each people may be going too far. Uh, but Robert Hutchins, University of Chicago, and uh, Bob Zimmer. Uh, Bob Zimmer, University of uh, Who stands up by, by contrast class, who stands up. Uh, uh, quite right. But the age of university presidents as intellectual, public intellectuals, uh, I think that the heyday of that was uh, decades ago. I recently had Paul McNeilis on the show, who is the president of the University of UATX. To talk about some of these um, early struggles they had with our announcement and and some and some of the controversy they were involved in very early on, one of the interesting developments at UATX that I've been following, that I'd love to get your take on, concerns their this novel novelty that they're developing recently, like over the past year, I think, of not waiting for the virtuous president to arrive and fix the university, rather to try to develop a kind of institutional structure that protects free speech. Yeah, have you followed the Judicial Council idea, Austin? Yes, uh, I think that is uh, a, a, a valuable innovation. And so, I'll, so I'll, let me describe it for our listeners who may not know. And so the, one of the ideas at, at Austin is to have a set of basic rights and freedoms established in a kind of a constitutional structure. And then the innovative feature is to have a quasi-independent judicial board or a judicial body that any complainant who feels that is or her free speech rights or due process rights have been violated, can take the complaint to that board, and that board can override the president's decision, override any policy at the university, because it's defending the rights. Of, so it's separation of powers based on the American founding. Yes. And, and I find that, Neil Ferguson came up with that idea, as I understand, and whether they adopt it fully, it's yet to be determined, I think. But it's, it's kind of a striking idea. It suggests that what it shows me is that every university in the country is, is sort of saddled with a situation where we're all relying upon a virtuous president to arrive and to stay virtuous despite all that. Counter-receptives. Austin's taking a different approach, building in this institutional structure. What do you, what do you make of that? Yeah, I think that's one of the, it is a, a truly constructive role of startup universities is to expand our our mental universe of governance structures and everything else in the universities because universities have gotten locked into a particular bottle of governance and, and everything else, partly because they all are uh, part of this kind of self or reciprocally grooming community where the criterion for your so-called excellence is just the subjective judgments of uh, other so-called excellent people. And we can get a kind uh, of a fully a of a, Bunch of people all saying how we, everywhere the young is prestigious. 
And anyone, had, uh, anyone who disagrees is not just to just need to keep them up. They're not up to our, our standards. So some way of just breaking that, um, breaking into that, that, that um, crystal or that bubble, uh, have some kind of, same kinds of checks and balances that we do have like with situation. I think it's a great idea. And, and others. I, I think the, you know, I did have some criticisms, some Bob Zimmer was also on the board, also was only around the same time and I never, I remember. I think they are, um, I'm more sanguine about it, both because I've been, uh, the, the, the rod of the legacy universities has become more apparent to me recently and to a, any alternative ought to be encouraged, but also because I think they have been, um, Dealing with some of the initial drawings. I think one of them is you must not allow um, the ideal of free speech to be conflated with the political right. Not that they stacked it much too much with the right wing um, uh, figures. Uh, I think that providing a kind of lifeboat for canceled academics is not the same as building program of the best possible uh, academics. That's right. Uh, I think the uh, problem with all startups, educational startups, is what to do about science. But I don't think you could be an educated person in the 21st century without science. That would be your track as far as students. Science need labs. Labs need a lot of infrastructure, government grants, uh, committees for the protection of human subjects, animal subjects. So there's the problem of how you provide a science education. Uh, without having to replicate a lot of the apparatus established in the university. Yeah, it's certainly financially it's a formidable undertaking to start in the university, especially a great university like they're trying to do. Maybe in partnership with the science faculties of nearby universities. But anyway, I do wish that well, and I've been involved in other startups like the New College for the Humanities of London. My friend Steve Costum ran the Urfa Project in San Francisco. So uh, I think it's good for there to be competition. I think they're good to be alternative models to fight out. Nice. I want to go back to the, the Council on Academic Freedom and, and, and talk a bit more about, about what, what you're doing there. So you, um, Harvard launched Council for Academic Freedom in April. Heterodox Academy, a month or two earlier, started organizing a, a new initiative of campus communities. So as you know, we're a membership organization with we one of our members, one of our active members, with uh, now over 6,000 uh, professors all around the world who share these values, a growing, a growing organization. One of our innovations over the past year is to start these, start gathering our professors on campuses together into communities. We call them communities. You call yours a council. You know, we will probably be working on a network that connects various councils and communities across the country and beyond in, in the near future. I'm just interested in the kind of activities your council might undertake. And I wrote, I, I read the op-ed last night in preparation for this interview, mm-hmm. and you were just beginning it, but I, I, I found five different activities that you mentioned in that op-ed as things you might, the council might undertake at some point. I'll just read them out as I, as I read them. Mm-hmm. So among the things the council might do, you said, include workshops on academic freedom, um, uh, orienting new faculty to the importance of free speech at Harvard, three, Adopting and enforcing policies that protect academic freedom. Four, providing collective support for individuals who are targeted for protected speech. And five, um, during moments of crisis, speaking to the administrators other year, uh, and calmly, deliberately, and forcefully, as you, as you put it. Um, have you begun any of these things? What, what's happening on campus? Yeah. Actually, you've been building, which is just remarkable. And that just, I, I just want to really emphasize this that 
then you were able to go from an initial group of 50 to 160 within in a half a year. Yeah. It's truly a remarkable and, and, and a newsworthy accomplishment. Beyond the, beyond the building the numbers, what have you done to build the numbers? I, I, yeah. that, that teach me. We did have a lecture on academic freedom by my colleague, Nepal. Oh, nice. Speak. Uh, for faculty? No, no, open to community. And that we plan to have one a semester. We have you had that last spring or the uh, last uh, earlier in the fall, and and so was that was that an, um that was to, it was for the for the purpose of make of people understanding that for it's a free speech of course was it also a recruiting tool? Were you thinking of it that way? Um, indirectly, right? We do want we, we don't since we are academics. We want to go beyond just saying you know free speech rocks. So we have free speech. But what is free speech? Uh, and it isn't just free speech in the sense of you would shoot your mouth off about anything, but also a culture of civil discourse. And that's one of the things that Ned Hall emphasized in his lecture. And that was another one of our aims, that you should be able to have a conversation uh, over matters in which you disagree without calling the other person a bigot or calling a, a censor. So you used the word civil, then you used the word constructive. Those are different things, right? We can have... Isn't our aim in the universities have a special kind of speech? It's not just free speech for any purpose. There's this reasons why the First Amendment protects all kinds of speech. Speech is that's intemperate, sometimes false, misleading. All kinds of speech can be, can be protected by the First Amendment. But at the universities who care about a certain kind of speech that is aimed at pursuing truth, the civility, the civility and important. How the power form of value is civility. Yeah. Is it the same as constructiveness? I'm not sure. It, it, it's not identical to it. It's you know, arguably a means to the end in that since it's the ideas that we're pursuing, but we are primates and we inevitably engage in dominance contests and, and some displays of being <laughs> get in the way of pursuing the truth. So to the extent that we keep it civil, uh, which has its own virtues, uh, but that is also a way to make sure that these prominent primary topics display so get in the way. Now, you know, it can't be uh, right in emphasizing they're not the same, because at some point, you don't want to be so civil that it's just rude to disagree with someone. Uh, and, yeah, and as we well know, That's right. even academic debates that we, uh, that we don't want to disperse can get, you know, as we say, heated. They can get uh, personal. There's nothing that we're going to be able to do, you know, about that in terms of legislation or policy, you can you know, pass a law saying you've got to be nice. Uh, I think that's something more that heterodox academy can uh, foster and, you know, and, and encourage. But when it comes to kind of policy and uh, enforcement, uh, if obviously very hard to enforce. Let me, let me just say that HXA, we have something called the HXA way, a set of norms, that cultural norms we want to encourage in the universities. Being nice is not one of our norms. It's fine to be nice. We, we try to be nice people. I'm Canadian. <laughs> so um, but, but, but among the norms are things like make your case with evidence. Yes. So, so show some humility. Yeah. Be where you might be. You know, all those kinds of norms that, that, again, are compatible with sometimes, sometimes, you know, kind of tough conversations. I've, I've heard many and been involved in some myself that are in, your, in, the, in the heat of the conversation, tried to make a point. You don't always... Uh, the fr- I remember when I first arrived at Brown, uh, we invited Martha Nussbaum. I invited Martha Nussbaum to give a talk, and I was and I was talking to an older colleague at the time, and I said, "So, who should be the respondent to give critical remarks to her her paper?" And the respondent who was a generation ahead of me, 
He said, well, that would be rude to have someone criticize her. Distinguished <laughs> speaker. I said, well, wait a minute. That's why we're here, right? We're, we're not here just for civility. Civility should be part of what we do, of course. But we're here for, you know, robust challenges. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's a kind of respect to show it. Yes, that's right. And civility has to allow for that, of uh, strong, strong disagreement. But uh, without the distracting personal invective ad hominem arguments, uh, arguments from authority, and, and so other distractions from the overarching goal of uh, understanding the world that are sort of truth. And so when, when we think about HXA and the communities that we're building, we talk about talk to our leaders to think of themselves on these across three terms. So we want them to be experts about open inquiry, exemplars of open inquiry, and advocates of open inquiry. Mm-hmm. And we think of those as kind of a stage evolutionary mm-hmm. process. So we our idea is you don't hook the academics who you want to have meeting your communities, your canvas to councils by trying to get the advocates out there first and foremost. Some of them will be effective, but that's also a certain personality type who wants to go out there and, and, and challenge people. But rather, the first and the easiest step, perhaps, is to encourage people to be experts, to become experts. And so the experts, then exemplars, and then more perhaps publicly they can have like that. Does that resonate with you? Is that the, the, yeah, how many you said a few minutes ago about not getting people to go out there. You didn't say bang pots and pants, but that's kind of what I heard you say. You're not, you're not trying to get rabble-rousers. You're trying to attract people to seriousness who want to learn more about open inquiry, who want to renew the, tra- tra- the tradition. Is that? Yes, and, uh, absolutely. At the Center of Academic Pluralism here in New York, we do a, a weekly seminar um, where residential fellows and visitors come together to talk about issues of open inquiry. In today's session, Steve Minker came and talked about uh, new, his new book manuscript on called Don't Go There, Common Knowledge and the Science of Harmony, Hypocrisy, and Outrage. We just finished that conversation. You and I, can you tell, tell us a bit about what common knowledge is and how it plays into this? Yes, common knowledge, in the, in the sense of that I'm, I've been studying it and writing about it for my next book, is a technical concept from logic and game theory that refers to everyone knowing that everyone knows something which is logically and uh, mainly is different nearly everyone knows this. So uh, it's social, it's deeply social. It, yes, it's so we have to steam it. Yes, it is social epistemology uh, in the sense that you are aware of other knowers and you know what they know. Um, so, and in particular, at, at infinitum, you know what they know about what they know about what, what others know or what others, others know. Uh, the, it sounds like an exotic concept, but I have argued that it corresponds to our our gut intuition that something is public or out there, uh, that um, the difference between something that is you know, whispered about on the QT or hinted at through euphemism and innuendo, and something that is boarded out, that's in your face, that uh, everyone, everyone knows about. And uh, yeah, a lot of phenomenon in economic and political life uh, are driven by common knowledge, like our, our conventions, like using paper currency, driving on the right, are all things that work out because we can expect everyone else to expect, everyone else expects to obey them, like driving on the right, uh, that, uh, or accepting a piece of paper in exchange for something of value. You do it because you know other people will in turn accept it. Why would they do that? Because they know that other people in turn will accept it. Uh, unless you have hyperinflation, we have common knowledge that it's valuable, 
uh, is is uh, challenged, and then they, they would become we'd be sabebra all over again, worthless. So this that's an economic phenomenon, and I suggest that it underlies a lot of our interpersonal social phenomena. It's why we use so much euphemism, the window, connecting with dots, with blinds, rather than blurting something out when we want to prevent something from becoming common knowledge. We know that other people uh, know it, but we don't know that they know that we know that they know it. That often preserves social relationships. And in, it, it also drives cases where people can collectively recognize that something exists or is a problem and act together to deal with it. So it also allows for sort of so common knowledge allows for cooperation, coordination. It, it is what is necessary for coordination defined as people making complementary choices that benefit them both. So um, common knowledge can have dark sides and, and bright sides. Can you connect, can you connect common knowledge the phenomenon of common knowledge to cancel, to cancel culture. Yeah, I think that a lot of the um, shaming mobs that result in cancellations, either by pressuring the leader to accede to the mob and make the mob go away by um, uh, canceling the person that has caused the outrage, um, and the uh, what happens to the per- person who's being canceled, and then we know who knows they're being canceled, come from the fact that that norms in a community are and they're enforced by common knowledge. That is, there's some things that you decent people so don't do. That only works if everyone knows it, but everyone knows it. So if someone reaches that norm, particularly in public where it's common knowledge, they insult a racial minority, they violate a sexual taboo, uh, then that challenges the norm if it's done in public. That is, it's common knowledge, and it... it, it uh, sparks the need to punish it to uh, safeguard the norm. The punishment also has to be common knowledge so that you know that everyone knows that it has been punished and therefore the norm it survives, survives that breach. And so in academia, we have unfortunately a number of beliefs that become moral norms. That's not what we're in the business of doing. It's maybe making it moral to believe some factual matters are in world with other factual matters. You know, what's what's true is true. The truth can't the truth can't be racist. But we have slipped into a norm system that depends on affirming certain factual beliefs, triggering this urge to punish people who challenge it. Now, this very human response. And by the way, challenges means ask question can mean ask you question. I mean it could, but in the case of what we call transculture doesn't what it means is censoring the uh, expression of the opinion, punishing the uh, person expressing it. Uh, so it, the, this whole dynamic of reinforcing social norms by collective punishment uh, runs afoul of the norm of challenging beliefs in order to find out which ones are true or false. Because some of the beliefs you challenge may be ones that are symbolic talismans or moral talismans in a community, uh, such as the you know, it used to be that men and women are indistinguishable, that, they're, that, that we're all like slings, but all sex did was just come from socialization. Someone bizarrely, uh, we now have a different one, that there are no such things as, as men and women, that they're nothing but the stereotypes that the last generation tried to eliminate, that a woman is someone who wears long hair and a dress, uh, and that, that uh, being a woman has nothing to do with chromosomes and hormones and, uh, and, and, and gadgets. 
in which is the set of issues that Carol Rubin and others um, have had such difficulties with. I want to ask about, in the seminar just now, we were talking about uh, cancel culture and the connection to common knowledge. Let me just turn it, as we, as we close here, I want to invite you to think about, think with me about common knowledge, harnessing common knowledge for the cause of academic freedom on campuses. Is there a way to build a culture of, I'm going to try to formulate this, I'll, I'll need your help, to formulate a, 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 a common knowledge culture of academic freedom, of the idea that there's a, a common sense understanding what a university is, I know what it is, you know what it is, I know that you know that I think it's this thing, that yeah. is a place that, a special place where you come to have conversations and to learn and to grow and to experiment. Is it possible to use some of the common knowledge machinery and, and, and insights to help us think about how to reform these universities? But what, do you, what do you make of that? I, I think so, in the sense that um, there are a lot of the cancellation campaigns seem completely innocent of the very idea that there is a virtue of academic freedom just doesn't, it's you know, self-evidently doesn't occur to them. Uh, otherwise, they think twice, so at least they would justify it in terms of why the cancellation outweighs the value of academic case. They may even do that. Because, I mean, academic freedom just is out there as a concept. So just making that, I, I, it may be futile to get everyone to sign on to it as a supreme value. But at the very least, they'll know that it is widely held. It is nominally what universities are committed to. Therefore, if they're going to try to load it, being better articulated, good reason, which in the past they haven't done. I mean, most often you can't do it. And so why they haven't done it. But in addition, they haven't done it because this hasn't occurred to them that it's an idea out there that has to be acknowledged. So I'm, I'm just interested in this idea that we could try to think about, I basically say we care about culture, academic culture, but not just having free speech rights, important, those, those, are, those, those are our campuses, but also building the habits of mind, the kind of policies that encourage these ways of thinking. Are there ways to, to um, does the council at Harvard, for example, have on its agenda or its radar screen the idea of trying to change the culture of Harvard over time, yeah. uh, slowly? Any, do you have any thoughts about that? It's, it's obviously harder to do because uh, a uh, culture is a grassroots phenomenon. It's a, it's a wicking anybody can contribute. Uh, it's a uh, it has a network effect. Sometimes things can ripple freely and become viral. But institutions matter. Institutions and po- other policies that other policies or institutional changes yeah, that so, might support the kind of culture, the kind of common knowledge culture that we might like at a place like Harvard. Yeah, so there certainly are policies, um, and I think they can give a nudge to to the culture. Uh, policies like we we're advocating for the university adopt the Calvin principles from the University of Chicago. These are the principles of of, of university neutrality. Yes, yeah, Calvin with a K. Uh, we would like to university get rid of mandatory diversity statements for academic job applicants, which can serve to either turn a whole generation of job applicants into liars, or um, uh, or weed out anyone who disagrees with a certain narrow orthodoxy. It seems like a form of forced political speech. Exactly. I mean, now, you know, and what, what happens is now that so postdocs that are the job market are getting with chat GPT to write their speech statements. So at least that way, we're fought. I have to, they don't have to feel guilty about setbacks who compose it something they don't believe it. Uh, so that's another policy. But you're right that not everything can be done by policy. Some things have to be done by um, evolutionary changes in the culture, which are difficult to engineer from the top down. Yeah, when we talk about our, 
are leaders of the Canvas Community Network being experts, exemplars, and advocates kind of in that directional way. And that's what we're really thinking about. And they have the power of a professor to show young people by his or her manner in the classroom. Yeah, the way they go about interacting with fellow professors on that in, in a debate or in their in their in their writings. That's a kind of example that we hope will will, will shine through and compete with the existing example, the existing paradigm, the existing culture, which is just seems so dending to so many students because it's just as a, 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 an avoidance of conversations. It's a, a closing down of questions you would like to ask and hope that you can ask. We hope that there could be competition in that fight. You no, know, and and that is uh, I, uh, I would be working for. Um, you know, it's something where you will catch results overnight, presumably. Right? And it is a, as with all cultural changes, uh, sometimes it can creep in a bit at a time and then simply uh, I take over. So. so let me just say for HXA, we're all we're just watching great interest, as many people are uh, with the council's activities at Harvard as you, as you grow and develop. Um, just we really rep, we're just so happy for you for having launched this. And I just want to thank you for joining me on Interdox Out Loud today. It's been an honor. Thank you for listening to this episode of Heterodox Out Loud. Our aim, as always, is to give you an insider's understanding of the perils and possibilities of open inquiry at universities and colleges. If you like this episode, subscribe to the Heterodox Out Loud podcast. Please leave us a rating and a review. And if you work in higher education, visit the Heterodox Academy website. Join the thousands of professors from all around the world who are working to support open inquiry. Until next time, I'm John Tomasi, reminding you that great minds do not always think alike.